slow. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, which is devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracies thrive. It's Thursday, April 21st, and I'm Patty Schlonsky, City Club board member and co-chair of the Programming Committee. And I'm pleased to introduce the speaker for this year's Richard and Sally Hollington Endowed Forum, Senator Rob Portman. A Republican from Cincinnati, Senator Portman has represented the Cincinnati area in the U.S. House and served in the executive branch as a U.S. Trade Representative and the Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Senator Portman was born and raised in Cincinnati, where he still lives today with his wife, Jane. After 10 years in office, Senator Portman announced in January of of last year that he would not seek a third term, launching Ohio into the national political news cycle. And now the current war in Ukraine has put the sum of Senator Portman's work directly into the spotlight. As the co-chair of the Senate Ukraine Caucus, Senator Portman has been working across the aisle to build support for the emerging democracy in Eastern Europe. In January, he led a bipartisan delegation to Ukraine to meet with President Zelensky and other Ukrainian leaders. After the war began, Senator Portman traveled to Poland to meet with refugees fleeing Ukraine and to meet with Polish leaders to thank them for opening up their country. Senator Portman also hosted a delegation of Ukrainian members of parliament in Washington, D.C. to meet with members of Congress so they can learn more about needed aid and support. Today, we will hear from Senator Portman on this work, his other current priorities in the Senate, as well as the accomplishments of his decade-long tenure in the Senate. If you have questions for the senator, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming the Honorable Rob Portman. Thank you all. I really appreciate that. And uh, Patty, thank you for that nice introduction, but also your leadership here at the City Club. I was mentioning to Dick, who so generously enables us to be here today, that uh, this is unique. There's nothing like it in Ohio, and I doubt there's anything like it around the country. Dan's nodding affirmatively. There's certainly no one like Dan around the country, I can tell you that. Um, but uh, I've always enjoyed coming here. It's, it's a great way to, to get the word out. and. Uh, to talk to some really interesting people who come to these, and I know we'll have an interesting opportunity to talk in a moment. I do have a lot to say today because Ukraine is complicated, and uh, so bear with me. Um, In addition to uh, so many great friends here from uh, the Cleveland area, like Dick Pogue, who I have been friends with forever since I was a kid living here in Cleveland back when I was three years old. I remember you, Dick, and I remember me. there are some great leaders here from the Ukrainian community, and I want to mention them briefly. Uh, 
Marta Lashinsky is here. Marta has become a dear friend over time. She's president of the United Ukrainian Organizations of Ohio, so the diaspora representing our entire state. And when I was recently on the Polish-Ukrainian border, who shows up but Marta? Um, and so she's done a lot of work um, addressing some of the humanitarian needs of the refugees. Rocky Perk is with us today, too. Many of you know uh, Rocky. and. Uh, he is president of the American Nationalities Movement, so that would include not just Ukraine, but all of the so-called captive nations. And um, I see we've got a table of folks from uh, the Polish-American community, the Lithuanian-American community, the Latvian-American community, and so on, uh, and I appreciate them very much. I also see Mike Polensik here with us, uh, city council member who has been a stalwart in uh, this nationalities community movement over time and also has helped us with regard to the Cleveland City Council. As you may know, Cleveland has actually provided some armored vests, uh, some personal protective gear for um, soldiers in Ukraine. Um, and I think that was because of you, Mike. So thank you. Um, I also uh, want to join uh, Dan in thanking my staff. You know, I am on my way out. I've still got eight months, two weeks, three days, and four hours left. <laughs> Not that I'm counting. <laughs> uh, but I have been blessed with just awesome staff and, and, uh, and Karen uh, and Josh here representing us locally uh, have, been, have been with us from, from day one. Um, there's so much going on right now. The crisis at the southern border is real. It's a real problem. Title 42, which is this health care authority to be able to turn people back, will be gone soon. And about half the people coming over now are being turned back under this Title 42, and yet we have a record number of people crossing the border. Uh, so it's a real problem. Uh, yesterday I was in Lima, Ohio, talking about the, uh, the opioid issue and the broader issue of substance abuse. As you know, I do a lot of work in that area, and, and I asked them about fentanyl, and of course they said, yes, it's the number one killer in, in that county, Allen County, Ohio. Um, nationally, about two-thirds of the people who are dying of overdoses are dying from this synthetic opioid called fentanyl. Uh, they said it's 80 to 90 percent in their county. And, um, so one of the issues on the border is the fact that that's where it's coming from now. For a while, it was coming through the U.S. mail system primarily, and uh, we drafted legislation that helped on that called the STOP Act. Uh, it worked well in the sense that now, kind of like whack-a-mole, you know, you reduce it in terms of the U.S. mail, uh, but it's now coming up in terms of crossing the border in Mexico. Precursors still coming from China, by the way, um, and coming here to Cuyahoga County in pill form. So the border is about people, but it's also about of this drug issue, and it makes us a border state in some respects. So that's a crisis. That's all I'll say about it today, uh, unless you have questions. But it's, it's uh, something we have to address, and we should do so in a bipartisan way, and I believe we can. Uh, inflation, everybody I talked to this week in Ohio, I'm dri driving around the state talking to people who are going to meetings. I'll be this afternoon meeting with some people who are involved in infrastructure, and they will tell you inflation, we talked about it at lunch today, is uh, obviously affecting every family's budget. And people's wages have gone up some, but inflation has gone up higher. And uh, so people are, are feeling like they're losing ground. And it's a huge issue. And for the economists in the room, uh, you know, it's supply and demand. And so much demand, so much stimulus out there. Uh, and yet the supply chain, partly because of COVID, uh, now because of Ukraine, has affected this. Uh, so Washington has a role to play here. One of the issues on inflation that I'll address this afternoon uh, at this infrastructure event is what is the impact of this infrastructure spending? 
And uh, my view uh, is that, and more importantly, economic analysis that, that uh, I rely on is that infrastructure is long-term capital assets. And that's the sort of spending we should be doing that will add to the supply side of the economy uh, versus the demand side. So I'm strongly supportive of that. As you know, I was the Republican lead on that legislation. We'll be talking about how to help protect Lake Erie today with regard to some of the things we're doing, but also roads, bridges, infrastructure that is so needed here in Cleveland. By the way, you have more bridges over the Cuyahoga River than any city in the world. <laughs> um, and most of them are in need of repair. Uh, so uh, those are big issues. But today, I, I, I want to focus on another crisis, which is Ukraine. And, you know, where to begin? There are so many people in this room who have a direct personal interest in this. Uh, there are a few tables here of people who have family and friends who are in harm's way this afternoon as we talk, uh, and they're being subjected to this unjustified, barbaric assault by Russia, uh, you know, bombing civilian targets. Uh, it's horrific. Um, I talked to someone in the lobby earlier, and he said to me, I can't believe this is happening in my lifetime, and I said, I never expected it either. I mean, this is the worst crisis in Europe, obviously, since the Second World War. The numbers are just uh, unbelievable in terms of the refugees and the displacements. We now believe there are roughly seven million people displaced internally, over five million people have left the country. That's 12 million people. Um, again, we haven't seen anything like this since World War II. Last night I heard a commentator say, not even in World War II. Today I was at Medwish, some of you know what they do, but it's an enormously uh, important institution here in Cleveland. They gather medical supplies, including from our incredible hospitals here in Cleveland, uh, Metro Health and University Hospitals and Cleveland Clinic, and also from private practitioners and also from some suppliers some companies. And then they provide these medical supplies to areas of the world that need them, and even here locally they provided some help for instance, to the Joseph and Mary House, some of you know about, uh, to help people who are um, you know, coming out of surgery and, and don't have the resources to be able to take care of themselves at home. And right now it's Ukraine. And they are supplying uh, enormous amounts of equipment to Ukraine and supplies uh, to be able to deal with the, the horrific, uh, like I said earlier, barbaric attacks, and particularly on the orthopedic side and just um, triage material, you know, bandaging and, and, and help for, for uh, wounded civilians. So I got to see this morning, you know, the best of Cleveland. Uh, we see the worst of Russia in terms of this attack. We see the best of Cleveland in terms of the response of the community. There were dozens of volunteers there packing supplies. Uh, the Ukrainian community here locally, um, and Marta's been at the forefront of this, has done a terrific job trying to figure out what the actual needs are. And, uh, and Medwish is, is, is doing a great job. Um, they help in terms of the environment because all this stuff would otherwise likely land up in a landfill because um, it's excess. And then obviously they are helping in terms of the desperate needs we have today in Ukraine. Just one more example of you know, how this community steps forward. Um, I have been to Ukraine uh, a number of times since 2014. This is when the Maidan occurred, the Revolution of Dignity, and Ukraine said we want to be like America. We want to be like Western Europe. We want democracy and freedoms, freedom of the press, freedom to gather. And at that point, um, I was there actually monitoring the first election after the Maidan and saw democracy at work and became convinced at that time that this was a cause we're supporting 
I've been back six or seven times since. Uh, most recently, as Patty said, I was in Poland. Um, I, I led the last congressional delegation into Ukraine prior to the invasion. I'm uh, one of the last Americans to see President Zelensky in a suit. Uh, now he's in camo. Uh, and uh, uh, I saw his resolve that day. I mean, we were talking about what might happen, and I was telling him that our intelligence sources were telling us the invasion's going to occur. And his response was, well, I can't believe they would do that, but if they do, we're going to be ready. On one of my trips, I was able to go down to what they call the line of contact. It's not the border, because Russia has pushed back the border in the Donbass, but the line of contact was that line that is still in place today, although the Russians are testing it right now as we talk, where Ukrainian soldiers were on one side, and Russian-backed separatists and Russians on the other side, including Russian equipment, Russian tanks. And there I got to meet with the soldiers who were in place on the line of contact. And I knew from meeting them and talking to them, a lot of them were, you know, in their 30s and 40s and pretty hardened um, and pretty tough guys. Um, I was able to say with confidence, prior to this invasion, they will fight. Ukrainians will fight. Uh, not just these brave soldiers, but also civilians who are patriots and who believe in the concept of a free and independent Ukraine. So it doesn't surprise me what we've seen. It really doesn't, but it's still extraordinary um, the way they have stood up for their country and for their freedoms. Uh, when I was there in Poland, I went down to the border, and who shows up but Marta and Andy Fute, as some of you know, Andy's in charge, uh, runs uh, the larger diaspora community for uh, uh, Ukrainian Americans around the country, and he's actually on the West Coast today raising funds for that group. But there they were, Marta and Andy. And so I was there with five colleagues from the Senate, um, and Cleveland was represented there. And what they were doing was helping with regard to the refugees. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, angst at the border, you can imagine. Uh, I was literally standing at the line between Ukraine and Poland and greeting people as they come in and talking to them. And it wasn't easy because they weren't happy <laughs> with me or with us. Uh, they were obviously in, uh, facing trauma. Uh, it was almost all women and children, some grandmothers and grandchildren. The men had been left behind to fight. And they told horrific stories, what was going on in their communities, what had happened to them, the bombings of their homes. They talked about losing family members, losing friends. And they said, why aren't you doing more? In fact, one woman said to me, uh, why are you standing here talking to me? Why aren't you providing a no-fly zone? It was tough, uh, because through their tears, there was also anger, anger at the West. And uh, I get it. <laughs> I think you or I would feel the same way if we were bombed out of our own homes, our communities, and, and watching loved ones uh, be wounded and, and even killed. Uh, we also volunteered at a place called World Central Kitchen. And I mention this in part because another group is doing great work. Uh, we're doing a fundraiser for them in my hometown of Cincinnati soon, and, and uh, we volunteered for a few hours helping to feed refugees who were at the processing center there at the border. They now have about 20 sites set up in Poland, Romania, uh, Moldova, and in Ukraine itself. And you may have heard this on the news this week, but this week one of their sites in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, was actually bombed, and they believe it was targeted. I mean, who knows? But here this volunteer group that is feeding th hundreds of thousands of people a day, millions of people a week, 
was actually bombed. Four of their employees were injured. Yesterday, I spoke to Jose Andres, who's this uh, charismatic chef from Washington, D.C., who started World Central Kitchen. And he informed me that three of those employees are now back at work, uh, wounded, but back at work. He said they're not going to give up. They have moved the site, um, keeping it uh, very confidential as to where it is. Uh, but that's the sort of stuff that's going on that really warms your heart, you know. So you see the worst of mankind and the best of mankind in terms of the response. You're at the Polish border and there are literally cars lining up of Polish citizens who are coming to pick up refugees. They don't know who they're going to pick up, but they're just offering a ride from the border to their homes where they're willing to host a family for however long it takes. Now, the Polish people have been extraordinary. And we just had an announcement a couple hours ago uh, by President Biden that the 100,000 refugees are going to start coming in to the United States. Uh, on April 25th, the process begins. They have to have a sponsor. They have to go through a screening process. Uh, my view is that 100,000 sponsors could be found like that here in the state of Ohio alone. Because I hear from friends and neighbors and constituents all the time, we want to help. And I know here in Cleveland, you will reach out. Uh, I will give you a name, Ellen Kinker, in our office, who's going to be our contact. Uh, this goes through the Department of Homeland Security, but we're going to be pushing them hard to send people to Ohio, and we want to be a conduit if you're interested. Uh, you can also contact Karen, who's smiling back there, knowing she's going to hear from a number of you. But let's welcome these people into our community. And uh, in particular, I would like to welcome those who have health care crisis, who are facing uh, an injury or health care problem, uh, because Cleveland has this great resource here. And the MedWish meeting this morning, we talked about that with UH there and Cleveland Clinic and the Metro, uh, and Metro Health, and all of them said the same thing. They would love to, love to be helpful, as they have been in the past. There were three wounded soldiers from the 2014 Maidan, remember that was a time we talked about the Revolution of Dignity, there were actually 100 people killed that day who were martyrs who were shot by snipers who were simply protesting. But some of those wounded soldiers came here to Cleveland, Ohio, and were able to get free health care here. And uh, one of those individuals, I was told today, is back in the fight. Uh, and he's helping to organize some of the humanitarian supplies right now. So it, it comes full circle. Um, I had a meeting recently in Washington. We've had several meetings with the ambassador. I'm co-chair of what's called the Ukraine Caucus, and we organize these meetings. So we have senators there, but also uh, people from Ukraine to come talk about what's actually going on on the ground. And that's been very helpful to sort of organize the effort. You may have seen it's been very bipartisan and almost nonpartisan. And at this meeting, uh, most recently, we had the ambassador, but also we had uh, four or five parliamentarians from what they call the RADA, which is their parliament. And that was extremely helpful. These were all women, by the way. Their husbands uh, are all home fighting. Um, but these members of the parliament told us about, you know, what's actually going on, what the human toll is. And they talked about this as being a fight uh, and a battle between evil and good and democracy and tyranny and encouraged us to do more. They made the point that this can be a simple victory for the West if we succeed and if we lose. Uh, just the opposite, that our enemies, our adversaries around the world are going to be watching, as were our allies. Um, they talked about the shelling in the streets. They talked about, one of the MPs said that the massive shelling was so bad that in the streets of Mariupol you couldn't go out and recover people because it was too dangerous. One of them talked about uh, her husband being in the Defense Forces. She hadn't heard from him in several days, was worried about him. One said there were 30 Russian soldiers living in her grandmother's home 
they kicked the grandmother out on the street. Um, others talked about uh, the need for more sanctions and more lethal aid. And one of them used a great phrase I've used since, which is that freedom has to be armed. Uh, this, mo this mother, this uh, parliamentarian was saying freedom is important, but freedom has to be armed. And we've all seen what's going on. We see it on the TV screens. We see it online. Uh, it's shocking. In Bucha, this is the suburb of Kiev where 100 civilians, not soldiers, but civilians, were found lying in a mass grave. Uh, people were left on the street. You probably saw this. President Zelensky has made the point that uh, many of them had their hands tied behind their back and had been executed. Um, so these atrocities, unfortunately, are being revealed more and more day after day. Rapes, um, people who are coming forward and telling their stories uh, about uh, a living hell that's going on in some of these cities when the Russians were, were occupying them. Um, I'm glad that the Biden administration has now called for an investigation into war crimes. I think this is incredibly important because when you hear what's going on with the Russian troops and, and this morning uh, there was a um, interdiction of some traffic between Russian soldiers and a general and uh, their morale is low and perhaps not in all uh, units but in many of the regular units and they're wondering, why are we here? You told us we were going on a training mission. Why are we killing these people in Ukraine who look like us and act like us and are Slavic? Um, and by telling some of those commanders and telling the officials in the Kremlin, you will be subject to war crimes. The world is watching. I think we can make a difference here, hopefully in having uh, more people willing to uh, push back against Putin's war. The Hague, the uh, International Criminal Court, has started an investigation, which is positive. But the United States must be sure that that is followed through on, that there's actually action, and if not, another tribunal is set up so that war crimes can be prosecuted. Uh, people have to be held accountable. We see these war crimes constantly being uh, engaged in. Uh, one that you've heard about, perhaps, is this theater in Mariupol, where people were hiding in the basement, kind of a bomb shelter within the theater, and they wrote in large letters uh, that you could see from the air, children uh, on both sides of the theater, um, you know, words, uh, letters this, this big, clearly. Uh, that's the theater that was uh, bombed, and uh, 300 people lost their lives, we found out uh, recently. And we weren't sure because we had to dig through the, people had to dig through the rubble to find out. And of course, it was mostly women and children. Um, so these war crimes are clear, and I don't think there's any question, but that these war crimes have been committed, and we need to be sure that they're held accountable. Um, Mariupol, this is uh, a disaster right now as we talk. You probably saw that President Putin said today that they're not going to continue the assault on the steel company within Mariupol. That might sound like good news. The reason is, he said, we're going to seal it off so that not even a fly could get in or out. So, in effect, calling people their flies, but also saying that they're going to starve these people. And they will die of thirst or they'll die of hunger. And this includes several hundred civilians, we don't know how many exactly, in the steel mill. Uh, and also includes, obviously, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, so that's their, that's their latest promise. Uh, I assume that they'll continue the bombing as well. I never believe what President Putin says. Mayor Mariupol has said that the death toll is at least 10,000 civilians. Mariupol. 
So that's the immediate crisis, and so frustrating. Four buses got out yesterday, but people are afraid to get on the buses. Why? Because others who have taken these so-called humanitarian corridors have been killed, have been shelled by Russian artillery while they're on the uh, humanitarian corridor. So no wonder people don't want to get on these buses. Um, as Russia escalates, civilian targets are now being hit with cluster bombs, uh, also vacuum bombs, which are sort of one step down from nuclear weapons as far as I'm concerned, uh, extremely dangerous, particularly to civilians. Um, and then yesterday, the Russian Defense Ministry announced the test of an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. And this is a missile that has uh, several warheads, all of which can be equipped with nuclear weapons. Um, it's a nuclear weapons delivery device. And they not only tested it, but they went public saying they had tested it, and Putin's uh, response was, the West better think twice. The West better think twice. In other words, using their strategic nuclear capability uh, as a threat against the West if we do anything. Um, this is difficult. This is very difficult. Nobody wants to see a war between Russia and us. No one wants to see the uh, nuclear powers engage in a direct war. On the other hand, can he get away with whatever he wants just by saying, you know, we have nuclear weapons and uh, don't you dare uh, come to the aid of Ukraine. Thousands of civilians have now died needlessly. Um, we talked about 12 million people being displaced from their homes. Five million of them are in Poland and other countries. Um, the question that has now been posed, given the success in Kyiv, is could the Ukrainians actually be successful in pushing back the Russian invaders and regaining the territory in the Donbass and even Crimea? I think a month ago people would have said that's impossible. They're facing, you know, the second biggest army in the world. Um, maybe the third biggest, we don't know exactly, uh, with regard to China, but one of the biggest armies in the world with all this deadly, uh, these deadly weapons. Now I think there's a little different analysis uh, because, again, Ukraine has responded and responded in a way that is so brave, so courageous, uh, so resolved. And also, we're finally getting weapons into their hands that they need. There was an announcement about two hours ago um, that the United States is going to provide another $800 million of military assistance. And it is the kinds of things that we really need. Um, howitzers, um, more drones, things that the Ukrainians have been asking for for a long time. Of course, it would have been great had we had those in place uh, prior to the invasion. And many of us were calling for more military assistance back then, uh, as I have called for it since 2014. And, um, but I'm pleased we're seeing it now. And this will enable them to be able to fight the fight and not just defend their territory, but hopefully push the Russians out of, of Ukrainian territory to be able to maintain their territorial integrity as a country. I think they can be victorious, but we've got to help them and help them more. They've got the heart. We've seen that. They're badly outnumbered, and they've got something that uh, is much stronger than any military force, which is the patriotism, the heart, the desire to defend their homeland and their families but they have to have the weapons to defend themselves. It's now been 57 days since the assault began. And day after day, we see that the training has paid off. So the taxpayer funding that went into NATO, helping to train Ukrainian forces over the last four and a half years, worked. 
you know, we, we transformed the force into a more effective one, uh, a more modern one, one where civilian control was in place, and, uh, and, and that has worked. World War II international order uh, that was set up and has worked since then to keep the peace is really what's at risk here. And uh, if we are not successful, if Ukraine is not successful in, in pushing Russia out of their country, uh, then you have to wonder what happens next. Will it be Poland? Will it be the Baltics? When you listen to what Vladimir Putin says, which I think you need to do, just as you do with, with any dictator, any tyrant, um, he's talking about taking back the old Russian Federation, which would include Poland, which would include Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, which would include other countries represented here. Um, so this is the war in our time, in our generation, where the fight for freedom is occurring, and that's why the United States must be there. Um, I'm encouraged, again, by this latest tranche, but I think we need to do more and can do more. And now that the battle has moved to the Donbass, and it's more of a classic military battle, this heavy artillery, heavy equipment is what's particularly needed. Um, I saw that this week Lviv was bombed again. It was on Tuesday, it was civilian infrastructure. And Lviv, as you know, is a large city in the western part of the country where most of the international aid organizations are headquartered. It's where the refugees are coordinated. So many of them come through Lviv, that train station there. You've probably seen photographs of it. Uh, every time there's a bombing in Lviv, uh, you know, people scatter and go to the bomb shelters. But it's where so much of the international effort is being focused. It's only about uh, 50 or 60 miles from where I was at the border. Uh, by the way, the morning we were at the border was the morning after, uh, actually five hours after the bombing had occurred at that training center outside of Lviv. So that part of western Ukraine does not have Russian soldiers, but it's getting bombed still, getting attacked. And one of the things that I have been talking to some of the members of the administration about, and I have not talked about publicly until today, here we are at the City Club, is I think at this stage in this war, for a lot of reasons, we need to protect at least parts of Ukraine with a humanitarian safe zone that can be done from outside of Ukraine. What do I mean by that? Again, Lviv is close enough to the border that the United States equipment that is now owned and operated by Romania, uh, Slovakia, uh, Poland, which is our Patriot missiles, could be brought to the borders and provide essentially a shield over parts of western Ukraine, including Lviv. And these Patriot missiles um, are very effective at stopping the kind of attacks that we've seen. So whether it's a missile attack or artilleries, uh, they, they're very effective at, at uh, protecting places like Lviv. And their range is about 115 miles, we're told. So there would be enough range if you were at the border on the Polish side, as an example, or on the Slovakian side or on the Romanian side to be able to then provide some protection out into Ukraine. It's not the full answer. It doesn't protect people in the eastern part of the country and the southern part of the country that are being attacked even more ferociously right now. But it does provide a humanitarian safe zone. Um, it also, interestingly, would have other effects. Today we were um, talking at Medwish about how to be more effective at delivering supplies 
I see someone from Medwish is here with us, Allie. Um, and one idea that I thought was very smart is to say, shouldn't there be a warehouse somewhere in Ukraine where we could store this equipment so that when it's needed, it can be delivered much more quickly? Because sending it from Cleveland you know, to Kharkiv uh, takes a long time, and it's very difficult to, to supply it. But how about having a resupply warehouse uh, in Poland or in Ukraine or in Lviv? So it's another example. If there was a safe place to have that, just as there's a safe place, would be a safe place for international rescue organizations, uh, frankly, the media are mostly in Lviv because it's relatively safer there. But again, the bombings still occur. So I think a next logical step without putting American boots on the ground, and actually the Patriot missile systems can be operated by these other countries. They do it now. Um, the U.S. Can, can supply the equipment. They can supply the people. That would be a way for us at least to have a place where there could be safety. One thing I have been pushing for is to get American diplomats back into Ukraine. I think it's a mistake for us not to be there and have a presence there. I know it's dangerous. Um, and God bless the Foreign Service officers who would put their lives at risk by being in a country like Ukraine. But what if they could be in Lviv? And again, have this shelter of knowing that there is uh, an umbrella in, in effect over Lviv. So that's another reason. By the way, the European Union has sent its uh, diplomatic representatives back into Ukraine, as have other countries. And again, America needs to be there. Um, it's also a place where, you know, we could we could uh, not just have American diplomats and the NGOs uh, and uh, warehouses for places like Medwish, uh, but a place where you could have meetings with the Ukrainians in a safer safer place. So, my hope is that the administration will consider that. Um, again, I've talked to them about it uh, privately for uh, over a month now, uh, and now I'm going to say it publicly, and we'll see whether there's any take-up. The battle has shifted, as I said, and that's why they need this heavier equipment. My hope is that what we've seen recently continues to happen. Germany is now sending tanks to Ukraine. Who would have thought that would ever happen? Um, they were so hesitant at first to provide anything other than humanitarian aid. Um, but that's what's needed. The Slovakian defense minister confirmed this month they're sending their Patriot S-300 defense missiles. This is like the Patriot system, but it's, a, it's an older Soviet system. It's quite effective still. Um, that's what President Zelensky has said that he needs. The list that we have heard, including fighter jets, which I continue to advocate. Uh, these are the MiG-29s that uh, were initially given the green light to go from Poland, and then we backed off. Um, I understand the concerns there, but I don't think that that's uh, nearly as escalatory as everything that Russia is doing every day. Again, going to cluster bombs or hypersonic weapons, and we can't have Poland send, you know, old Soviet MiGs. It seems to me um, that that is something we should continue to do. They want them. They need them. Um, we should find ways to help more on the anti-air defenses. I mentioned the S-300s going from Slovakia. Other Eastern European countries have them. We can back them up with our systems, like the Patriot system, and they've indicated they'd be willing to do that, but that takes us being creative. These um, so-called loitering munitions, which are the drones, we need to send more of those. Again, I was pleased to see today that we're now sending some, and I hope we'll send some larger ones. Uh, the so-called Switchblade 300s is what we've sent. The Switchblade 600s will be much more effective against tanks, against ships. So there are things that I'll continue to advocate for, as will many of my colleagues. Uh, late last week, I sent a letter to the President, along with Senator Durbin, um, 
Senator Klobuchar, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Shaheen, and Senator Wicker. Uh, so it's a bipartisan letter saying, please appoint a coordinator for all these efforts in Ukraine as they relate to military assistance. Because frankly, uh, you have a lot of different agencies involved, the State Department, Department of Defense, uh, also the National Security Council, um, and we hear different things from different people as we, be, as we try to push and do it in a constructive way, in a bipartisan way, in a usually a, you know, off the record way, but it's difficult to know who's in charge and who's accountable. And this is a major effort, a major expenditure of taxpayer money. We should have one person who's held accountable. By the way, this idea came to me from General Petraeus, who believes we'll be much more effective if we have somebody at a very high level who can coordinate all this, including understanding exactly what the Ukrainians need and being sure it's delivered you know, to the right units uh, within Ukraine. So I hope the administration will take that seriously, enable us to cut through the red tape and have one person who's accountable. The uh, sanctions um, have been somewhat helpful, but they are limited. And that's the other thing that I have been pushing hard on and I think we all need to, which is to say, yes, the bank sanctions are good. Too many banks uh, that are connected to the SWIFT financial messaging system, by the way, are still allowed to, to work and to operate. Uh, we need to block all of them. Uh, we need to take, do other sanctions that are helping to cripple the Russian economy. But the most important one by far, that's not talked about enough in my view, is energy. And as long as the Russians are getting um, hundreds of millions of dollars, about $1 billion a day from the Europeans alone, about $1 billion a day in terms of receipts coming into Russia from Europe with the purchases of gas, oil, and coal, uh, Putin will be able to continue to fund the war machine. And you might wonder why the ruble has uh, regained uh, its value. I think a lot of it, when you look at it closely, is because of these energy receipts that are coming in. They're coming from India, they're coming from China, and not much we can do about that except to continue to urge them not to buy Russian energy. Good luck with that with regard to China because they now have an alliance with Russia and don't seem to care about the atrocities that are being committed. But with regard to Europe, uh, we need to push them to do more. And I know it's difficult for them. They're not nearly as dependent on, uh, we're not nearly as dependent on Russian energy as they are. So for us, it was relatively easy compared to Europe. Uh, by the way, we were sending uh, about $50 million a day to Russia, just from the oil we were buying from them. We've now cut that off. So Europe has recently entered into an agreement with us, the EU, saying that over time they would reduce their use of uh, Russian gas, in particular with regard to uh, natural gas, and that it could be replaced by LNG, liquefied natural gas, from us. Uh, most recently they said maybe by the end of the year they could do that. It has to be now. It has to be now. Otherwise, these funds will continue to flow into, into Russia. Um, there are a number of other things that need to be done on the tax front. Um, I've been working on legislation with Senator Ron Wyden. We've introduced something to disallow foreign tax credits for companies that do business in Russia. Um, I took the lead on this thing called PNTR, which is basically saying that Russia shouldn't have most favored nation treatment in the United States, that their products shouldn't be subject to preferences in terms of tariffs. Uh, we finally passed that last week. Um, I think we should seize, not just freeze, the assets of Kremlin supporters. I've been at this legislation with Senator Bennett on that, uh, called the Relief Act, uh, that would actually seize these assets, by the way, as Germany is doing, France is doing, other countries are doing, and then provide these assets to the humanitarian effort in Ukraine. 
there will need to be an incredible amount of money spent at some point to save Ukraine. Um, but right now, they need funding just to deal with the humanitarian crisis. And again, energy is by far the most important one. Um, under pressure from Congress, you know, we did that here finally, but now we need to do it in Europe. Let me just end with uh, something that uh, many of our Ukrainian friends in this room are very well aware of, which is uh, the Ukrainians, as I said earlier, are patriotic. They are committed to this vision of a new Ukraine and a free Ukraine. And when I was down on the border, I was given a, uh, the line of contact with these soldiers. I was given a, a flag of, of Ukraine. It was by the Ukrainian special forces who were there, and they wrote with a, with, with a marker on, on the flag, and it said, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. And I didn't really realize how significant that was until I spent time here with our community in Cleveland and um, at a uh, Ukrainian Orthodox church, uh, people said, Slava Ukraini, which is glory to Ukraine, and then Heroyam Slava, which is glory to the heroes. And so what I'd like to have done, uh, I'm gonna need you up here just for a minute. Can you record this? Yeah. Okay. Gabe is gonna be our recorder, and we're gonna provide this to some of our Ukrainian friends in Ukraine. And this is how it goes. The rallying cry is, glory to Ukraine, Slava Ukraini, and then the response is, Heroyam Slava. Have I pronounced that more or less right? Okay. <laughs> Phew. Um, so I'm gonna say the first part, Slava Ukraini, and then you're gonna, in a very loud voice, respond, glory to the heroes. And then we're gonna send this, uh, I don't know if I can get it to President Zelensky, I hope I can, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna try. And we're definitely gonna get it to other Ukrainians who will, who will tell him about it. So this is Cleveland, Ohio, showing our solidarity with the people of Ukraine. So, you ready? Slava Ukraini! Did you get it? That was really good. That was really good. So, um, OH. That wasn't as good. Okay, good. Um, I met, mentioned this meeting with the parliamentarians, and at the end of the meeting, um, one of the women, and these were tough, tough women, they were, they were not being easy on us. You know, they want us to do more across the board, the sanctions, the military assistance, and so on. But she said, people now say, we are all Ukrainians. And I've said that now and again. We are all Ukrainians. We're all with them. She said, if that is true, then people must be like Ukrainians. And she said what that means is that people must be brave, creative, and fast. <laughs> and uh, so let us help Ukraine, and let's do so by being brave, creative in terms of how we provide that assistance, and fast. They need it now. Thank you all. Thank you, Senator Portman.
very much. Uh, we're about to begin the audience question and answers. Uh, for those in our live stream audience, I'm Patty Schlonsky, City Club Board Member and Co-Chair of the Programming Committee. We're joined today by Senator Rob Portman. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can text a message to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please. Uh, good afternoon, Senator. I'm John Habit, and we're glad you made it back. Does everyone know that they named Habitat for Humanity after John? <laughs> That's a, an urban myth, but go yeah. ahead. I like yeah. it. Uh, anyway. But he has led Habitat for Humanity here in Cleveland for years and, yeah. and done an awesome job. Thank you. There's a, I think it's a 2005 agreement with Ukraine, Russia, and the United States, which basically um, Ukraine agreed to surrender its nuclear weapons, and it's been suggested, implied, stated that the United States had some sort of commitment to defend Ukraine if that agreement was violated. Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, th thanks for raising that. It was actually back in 1994, so it's a little more dated than that, and it was um, the Budapest Memorandum in which the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia all agreed to protect the territorial integrity of Ukraine in exchange for Ukraine giving up their nuclear weapons. And you can imagine how uh, the government of Ukraine feels about that now. They think, you know, boy, why did we do that? Why did we trust Russia, of course, but also the West? So again, I'm, I'm not suggesting today that we put boots on the ground and engage in a direct fight with Russia, but we gotta do more because we made a commitment, all of us made a commitment through our government back in 1994 to do more. Since that time, by the way, Russia has violated everything that they've agreed to in terms of the, the various agreements that they've made um, with Ukraine. Um, but that's a really good point, John, and um, one that I think most Americans are not aware of. Thank you. Hi, thank you, Senator Portman, for being here today. My name is Christina. I'm a student at Laurel School. Um, you have expressed concern today and on the Senate floor um, that the U.S. must speed up help to Ukraine, speed up the transfer of this Warsaw equipment that Ukrainians know how to use. Um, you've mentioned, like, the S-300 systems, the SA-8 systems, and the SA-10 that they can equip themselves with that they already know how to use. What are the obstacles to speeding up the transfer of these uh, systems? Do you believe that's lack of communication, lack of bipartisanship, or is that fear maybe on the part of the administration of Russia and of Vladimir Putin? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Is it Christina? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> wow, somebody actually listened to those floor speeches. <laughs> I'm amazed. <laughs> You and about five people. No, seriously, thank you. Um, I've given a speech on the floor every day uh, since the Russians started their big buildup. I mean, every, every week, so about eight weeks in a row. And in those speeches, I, I outlined precisely, even more than I did today, if I bored some of you today with, with the amount of detail, but about specifically what we could do. And in our own U.S. stocks, we have some of this equipment because 
now and again, we've managed to scoop up some Soviet-era equipment to understand how it works and test it against our own planes, as an example, the S-300 um, and the other systems that you talked about. Um, and so my urging to the administration is get it over there, uh, even if it's spare parts that go with these machines that we have in our country. And they've done some of it, but not all of it. And I can't get a good explanation. Again, not having one coordinator, it's been frustrating because you talk to one individual and they say, we're going to do it. And other ones, well, maybe not. Remember, we gave a green light to the MiG-29s through the State Department. And then the Defense Department uh, came back and said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, so they, they need better coordination, in my view. That would help to speed it up. But uh, in general, I guess I would say, you know, be creative and, and you know, be brave and be, be fast. I mean, it needs to be... Uh, understood that this is not a, a typical bureaucratic exercise to try to get this equipment out. Normally you have sign-offs of all kinds of interagencies and you've got to go through the process of uh, being sure that the lawyers have signed off on everything. We can't do that here. People are dying every day. So every day they don't have that anti-aircraft system to be able to protect Kharkiv or Mariupol as we've seen. Um, you know, more people are dying. So we're just pushing as, as fast and as hard as we can. To their credit, uh, the 82nd Airborne is in Poland, handling a lot of this equipment. Uh, about 5,000 additional troops were sent about six weeks ago, and the Poles love them. These soldiers I met, I had dinner with all the Ohio uh, soldiers that we could find at the 82nd Airborne when I was there, and they said, it's really strange, Senator. I walked down the streets of Warsaw, um, and people literally come up and start hugging me. I said, at first I wasn't quite sure, you know, what they were doing. <laughs> But they're just so happy to have our troops there. And they're the ones who are unloading this equipment and trying to move it as quickly as they can. But it just has to happen, you know, in lightning speed. And that's not something that our, our system's good at. So we just got to keep pushing it. Good question. So is that a whole table of students? Okay, you're not a student. No, you, you, you nodded your head. Are you the teacher? Awesome. Thank you for bringing the, the students. Great question. Senator, How are you? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for being here today. It was quite uh, uh, interesting to hear all your comments. And I know you being uh, in for a long time, my question is a little bit different mm -hmm. than, than, than Ukraine, although we all cry for what's happening over there. Mm -hmm. uh, I was raised during an, area, an era where Democrats, Republicans, independents, most of all the politicians would have meetings or they would survey their constituents to their wants, needs, etc. They truly represented their people. There would be compromises in their discussions, and they would be resolved. Today, we see our representatives when they are out campaigning for re-election and or raising money for their next election. You are not seeking re-election, yet in some of your situations, you have voted with the party instead of your personal feelings, which we know. What has happened to our elected representatives? Why are they so distant? Where are we as a country going? I am ashamed the way we are leaving our country to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. What do they have to look forward to? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll be at, I think, five events today. I was at five yesterday. So I'm, I'm out and about, and I'm not even running for re-election. Uh, <laughs> but I always have been, and I think it's important to get out and hear from people. And, you know, some of the events are, are you know, very specific, like a factory tour. Uh, but I always try to meet with the workers, you know, and do a town hall meeting um, and that sort of thing. So you, you try to get a feel for what people are thinking. Um, I'll say th 
three things quickly. One, I understand your frustration that maybe people aren't representing their constituents. I will say our country is divided. So it's not just the politicians who are divided, and that's not an excuse, because as you know, I work across the aisle all the time, and I get criticized for that from my own party sometimes. But the Congress reflects to a certain degree what's actually going on in our country. And so we have to look into our own hearts. <laughs> and for our young people here, it's up to you. Like, you know, don't just go on social media and find something that reaffirms your beliefs and makes you, you know, even more hardcore on the right or the left or wherever you are. Uh, you know, look at both points of view. And I think there's a lot, a lot less of that. I think that's one of the reasons we are where we are. Where we are. Uh, social media is getting blamed for a lot of things these days, but I think that's one that's legitimate. Is that, uh, and the same with broadcast TV. You know, it's hard to find the news because each side is kind of represented. If you watch MSNBC and watch Fox, it's like you're in two different worlds. So I think that's one thing people have to recognize is it's not, it's, it's all of our responsibility. Second, I agree with you that there's not enough focus on results. And to me, it's very simple. You hired me to get something done. You're not going to agree with me on everything, but you said, I want to achieve some results. And I've taken the lead over the last several years on this issue of providing military funding for Ukraine, as an example, and work with Democrats, Republicans, everybody. In fact, I, you rarely see me do something that's not bipartisan because that's how you get it done. And the notion that you can say bipartisanship is bad and we should end it, well, what are you going to do? Just throw out the red meat on the right or the left? I mean, you've got you you to find willing partners. And then your final point on compromise, I, you know, I know compromise is viewed as a dirty word, but do you compromise in your family? Yes, you do. You won't admit it, but you do. <laughs> in your business? I mean, you have to. If, if you want to come up with you know, a solution, you've got to figure out how to bring people along and persuade people, and you're not going to get your way every time. And so I think we need to readjust our expectations a little bit. And uh, I know that's not, again, terribly popular on either side of the aisle. Maybe it's easier for me to say because I'm not running for re-election, but that's how I've tried to conduct myself. I haven't always been perfect at it. As I said, you disagreed with me, I'm sure, on many occasions. But I hope you know what I've tried to do is to figure out how do you get from point A to point B, whether it's the opioid crisis or whether it's dealing with human trafficking or a Second Chance Act or tax reform or helping with inflation. Like, how do you actually help get something done? And that's what I think is getting lost in our political system, and I'm, I'm concerned about it. And when I'm out of office, I'm going to try to help from the outside. So join me. And, uh, you know, let's try to get people back to a point where we're not going to agree on everything, but we've got to figure out how to get things done. Marta. Senator, Ohio thanks you for your leadership. We thank you, thank you for, for your bipartisan leadership, which is very important and particularly on the Ukraine issue, uh, standing with democracy, ensuring that democracy prevails not only in Ukraine, we know that it affects Eastern Europe, Europe, and as well as the West. Um, we were very uh, excited to hear today, which you made the announcement about the humanitarian uh, safe zone, because the issues that we've talked about with Medwish uh, in terms of delivery of humanitarian assistance, the logistics of delivering assistance uh, is ongoing, and we anticipate that we will be looking into the long-term projects that can help Ukraine as it maneuvers through this unprovoked, brutal war that Russia has, has launched uh, onto Ukraine. 
that would be a, very helpful if we had an area of western Ukraine where we know that people knew that the area was vetted, that our partners on the ground were appropriate partners to receive the aid. And we thank you for that. Is there a little bit more of an elaboration on mm -hmm. that particular project that we can help you with, or at mm -hmm. least to explain a little bit more about it? Yeah. Well, thank you. And there's been discussion over time about a no-fly zone over the country. Um, the issue there, of course, is we'd have to go into Russia and into Belarus to actually take out the air defense systems that uh, Russia has, uh, because that's what's keeping it from being a no-fly zone. In other words, they're, they're shooting down Ukrainian artillery or Ukrainian planes, uh, often from outside the country. And so that would put us in direct conflict with, with, with Russia. I get that. But this would be an idea where you could actually stay within the boundaries of our Eastern European allies and provide a, an umbrella over parts of Ukraine. Not enough of Ukraine, but parts of it, important parts, including Lviv. So I know the work you've done with the Ukrainian uh, NGOs trying to get your supplies in, and you have indicated that would be helpful, as you just said today, because that's where the NGOs tend to be located in Lviv, because it's, it's the big city that's relatively safe. So that's all I'm suggesting, is that you know, we come up with a way to support an effort to provide an umbrella, at least in that part of Ukraine. And again, that's where U.S. diplomats could go. It's where not just NGOs, but um, that's where the press is, primarily headquartered, uh, to be able to cover this, this war and do it from a, a place of safety. And uh, so I, th I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, in, in terms of this fight about freedom, there is uh, uh, there are some, my constituents would say, why are you so involved in this? You're from Ohio. You know, you're not from Ukraine. And I say, yeah, I'm not from Ukraine, but, but this is the battle of our time. This is where freedom is being tested. And I also happen to represent a lot of Ukrainian Americans who have helped educate me over time, as well as, uh, you know, other supportive countries in the region. Uh, and I, I think about, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say peace through strength, and I think that applies here, that we're only gonna have peace when tyrants like Putin know that there is strength that he's pushing up against. Uh, but there's another speech and a quote that was uh, written in a speech that was never given, and it was meant to be given um, on the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Remember, perhaps that afternoon, he was supposed to speak to the World Affairs Council in Dallas, and his speech, which I will probably mangle, but it went something like this. Uh, we in this generation, by destiny rather than choice, are the watchguards on the walls of world freedom. That was John F. Kennedy. We by destiny rather than choice. That's who we are as Americans. You know, if we don't stand up when freedom is under assault, who will? And it's not by ourselves. We're not the world's police officer. We're the world's sheriff, sort of, you know. We like had a posse with us. And there are 30 or 40 or 50 countries, depending on how you count them, who are with us on this and are providing weapons and providing humanitarian assistance. And, but America, by destiny rather than choice, we're a peaceful country. We just assume not be involved everywhere in the world. But keeping the peace is in our national security interest. And that's why we need to be there. And that's why a center from Ohio gets so engaged in this issue. It's the right thing to do for our own country and our own people, but also the cause of freedom. Thank you all.
Today at the City Club, we have been talking with Senator Rob Portman. This forum is the annual Richard and Sally Hollington Endowed Forum, which was created to celebrate the City Club's dedication to local and national civic dialogue. Dick devoted more than five decades to practicing law and taking on leadership positions in the community. Sally was also an extremely active civic volunteer and served on the boards of numerous education and medical institutions. Their generous support reflects their commitment to the exchange of ideas and opinions about important issues of the times. We are grateful to the Hollington family for being such outstanding civic champions in Northeast Ohio. It's great to have Dick and his son Peter with us today and to have this opportunity to remember Sally Hollington. We also would like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Campus International High School, Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park, Cuyahoga Community College, the Jewish Federation of Cleveland, Laurel School, Senator Portman, Squire Patton Boggs, and United Ukrainian Organizations of Ohio. Thank you all for being with us today. We will be back tomorrow afternoon, Friday, April 22nd. Warren Anderson, Ariane Kirkpatrick, and Michael Jeans will be with us for a special conversation about the unique challenges of black business leadership at the highest levels. You can learn more about this forum and how to get tickets at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Senator Portman, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Patty Schlonsky. This City Club is now, this forum is now adjourned. <laughs>